from the dictionary, inviting, offering the promise of an attractive or enjoyable experience, to request the presence or participation in a kindly, courteous, or complimentary way, especially to request to come or go to some place or gathering or to do something, a wedding invitation, a graduation invitation, a birthday party invitation. We invite you to join our club. We invite your comments. All of those phrases have different meanings depending on the context. But what does that mean in this context? A context where one commonality we share is that we've all been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. There's something about an invitation. An invitation makes us feel special. An invitation makes us feel wanted and accepted. An invitation is a powerful way to reach out to others. A man invites a lady out on a date. A business person invites a client out for lunch. A homemaker invites a friend over for coffee. A family invites another family to supper. Invitations are important in the Bible as well. Both God and Jesus extended invitations. We see that God's message is often in the form of an invitation. It should not surprise us, therefore, that servants of God, his family, the family of God here on earth, would often reach out to others in the form of an invitation. So never underestimate the power of a simple invitation. It transformed the life of Peter and Andrew, who were invited by Jesus to follow him, and it's transformed the lives of countless thousands, if not millions, since then. Perhaps some are not even being led to Christ because they're simply not being invited. I think Jesus, in his own words, summed it up best. When he sent out the 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he said, Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. Anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. Inviting. Offering the promise of an attractive or enjoyable experience. Requesting the presence or participation in a kindly and courteous and complimentary way, especially requesting to come or go to some place or gathering or to do something. We invite you to be inviting. Good morning. I want to thank Larry and Michael and Barry for the comments that they've made this morning um, about inviting. In a few minutes, we're going to have an invitation uh, for each one of us. It's the invitation of Jesus. The invitation that he gives us to come around his table 
and to feast or partake with him. He is the host of this table. Uh, Bob is going to talk in a few minutes about that idea. One of the things that we're going to talk about right here for just a moment is some things under the old law. And you say, well, what does that have to do with us? doesn't bind us anymore. Well, you may be right about that. But without the old law, we don't really have a good example of the things that we should do and the things that we should think, and we, don't, we certainly don't have a good picture of our God. We have a limited knowledge, unfortunately, of the sacrifices under the old law. Now, whether it's just because we just neglect to do that or whether it's boring. Have you ever read Leviticus? It's tough. But it's God's law. We need to renew an interest in that. We have never experienced, I dare say that anyone in here, there may be a few that have experienced uh, a sacrifice of an animal. I really doubt if there's anybody in here that has. But even in our culture today, we haven't even experienced the slaughter of an animal. So when, when we talk about this and when we read about it, it kind of leaves us lacking an understanding of what was going on and why it was going on. One of the things that we need to look at when we look at Scripture is this is the story of God. We're going to begin right at Genesis 1-1 because that sets the stage for God's relationship with us and his desire for us. If we begin someplace else, then we miss that. It says, in the beginning, God created. We'll stop there for just a second. God is a creator. Do you think he just created and now he sits back and watches it? No. He is a creator. He continues to create constantly. He is a giver. He is a caregiver. He is a lover. He is a sacrificer. In the beginning, God created Man did not deserve to be created. You did not deserve to be created. I did not deserve to be created. Well, why did God do this? Have you ever thought about why God created man? Was it because God needed something from us? No. God needs nothing from us. God created man out of his love and his desire to to have us commune with him. Why? Because he needed that? No. Because he wanted us to receive the benefit of his love. That's a little hard for us to understand sometimes, except that. Why did you have children? You had children to share your love with them, didn't you? You had children because you wanted to care for them. You had children... Because you wanted to show them the way. Hmm. Kind of interesting, isn't it? 
as a result of God's love for us, and after the falling away, we'll use that term, the falling away of man, the sin of man coming into the world, disharmony took place in the creation. You see, up until this time, there was complete harmony. And we say, well, that's harmony of man and God. That's harmony with everything. Because when you read in Genesis chapter 3, after uh, Adam and Eve sinned, you understand I didn't say just Eve sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. My interpretation of that is that when this was going on between Eve and the serpent, Adam was standing right there. Acquiescent in everything that took place. Disharmony took place then in all creation, with the animals, with the earth, with everything, with the weather, with people, and God. If you read in chapter 3 of Genesis, you will find that as a result of the sin of man, we had thorns and thistles. As a result of the sin of man, we have disease now. And as a result of the sin of man, we have death. Death of man, death of animals, death of plants, death. God wanted to create harmony back with his creation. So as a result of that, he created a set of laws. He took the people to, out of Egypt, he took his chosen people to Mount Sinai, and he made a covenant with them. This has always been God's covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. That is still God's covenant today. I will be your God. You will be my people. I am holy, so you be holy. And this is how you are holy. And then he tells them his law. As a, as a part of that law were the sacrifices. The sacrifices were meant as a way of worship, but they also served other purposes. There were sacrifices before Mount Sinai. I don't know where the direction for that happened. I'm sure it came through the patriarchs, God talking to the patriarchs of the families, but they sacrificed. And when they had a covenant, they sacrificed to seal that covenant. So when God gave the children of Israel the law at Mount Sinai, he gave them a series of offerings, a series of sacrifices. And what we're going to talk about for just a minute are some of those sacrifices. There were essentially three types of sacrifices. There was the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the peace offering. Sometimes the peace offering is referred to as the thanksgiving offering, the fellowship offering, the free will offering. We'll talk probably the most about that. The burnt offering, and I think one of the things you need to remember is this. There was only one sacrifice that the offered animal was completely burned up. Just one. It was called the burnt offering. The animal was laid on the altar, the fire was built, and the animal was burned up. 
it was a holy and uh, pleasing fragrance before God. Why did they do that? Well, they did it twice a day on a regular day. They did it first thing in the morning, and then they did it in the evening. Now, we're talking about an animal, uh, a bull, and probably, it probably was a bull ox, a bull uh, between one and two years old. It probably weighed somewhere between 800 and 1,000 pounds, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. That's a lot to burn up. I always interpreted or always thought that all the sacrifices were burned up. They weren't. The other kind of sacrifice, well, let me say this about that. The significance of the burnt offering was that it established a commitment to God a complete and full surrender to God. By burning up the animal, you were essentially saying, God, we give our all to you. It was a matter of praise and worship to God. It was also a way to appease God's anger for the sin that man had had, uh, committed. So they did it twice a day. On the Sabbath, they did it four times a day. And on special occasions and festivals, they did it the four times a day. It was a time of rededication. It was a time for recommitment to God. The sin offering is pretty self-explanatory. It had to do with unintentional sin. And you had an offerer who would bring the animal to the priest or to the tabernacle and... Uh, It was generally, again, a bull. It could be a sheep. It could be a goat. So we still have a large animal, a very large animal, a large carcass. What happened with that is the, the offerer would bring the animal to the front of the altar. He would lay his hands upon the the head of the animal, and I'm going to assume, and this is an assumption on my part, that at that time he would have confessed his sin and would have, uh, the, the purpose of laying the hands on the head of the animal is that the, it, it was figurative, passed the sin on to the animal. The animal was then slaughtered in front of the altar by the offerer. The priest then took the the carcass. It was taken someplace in the tabernacle, I assume, and it was butchered. What happened next? There were certain internal organs that were taken out of the animal. I mean, I know this is not the most pleasant thing to hear. And they were laid on the altar along with the fat. You can read over in Leviticus, it says the fat belongs to God. And they were burned. What happened to the meat? It was given to the priest. And they had to eat it in a holy place. 
The last one we're going to talk about is the peace offering or the Thanksgiving offering, the fellowship offering. These were a free where they were done by the free will of the offerer. They were spontaneous. They happen on a very regular basis. Probably numerous of these happened each and every day. The offerer would bring the animal, which was a young bull or a male goat. It could even be a female goat or a female sheep. And it depended on who was offering it, who was being offered for. If it was being offered for the nation, it had to be a bull. If the nation, if the, if the nation of Israel had um, committed sin, they would offer this sacrifice, and it would be a bull, two to three years old, this pretty large animal. Or it could be a male goat, one to two years old. Again, a pretty large animal, not near as large as the ox, but a large animal nevertheless. If it was the priest, it was still a bull. If a priest had committed a sin, it was still a bull. Even the common person could offer these kinds of sacrifices, and they could bring a sheep or a goat, male or female. All of these animals had to be without defect, choice from their herd or their flock. The offerer would lay their hands upon the head of the animal and would express the the purpose of that, and that would be to forgive sin. The Thanksgiving offering then again would be a bull or a cow with defect, or without defect, I'm sorry, or a sheep or a goat. The free will offering, and I'd never heard this before, the free will offering could be an animal with defect. That would have been okay for that because it was offered in such a way to offer worship to God, to offer uh, thanksgiving to God. It was free will. That was the only one that I know of that could be a defected animal. They all had to be <clears throat> uh, animals without defect. What happened to it? Well, it was taken and it was butchered by the offerer. The internal organs and the fat again were laid on the altar and they were burned up to God. What happened to the rest of it? They had a a thing they called the wave offering. The breast and the right thigh would be taken by the offerer, held up to God and say, I offer this to you, God, and then it would be given to the priest. The priest then could take it to his family and they could eat that. This was kind of one of the places I read, so this was kind of like their their payment. And the rest of the carcass, the rest of the animal, and we're again talking about an 800 to 1,000 pound, maybe 1,200 pound uh, animal, maybe with six or 700 pounds of meat, was given back to the offerer. They had to eat it the same day. I've never tried to eat six or 700 pounds of meat. I wouldn't even want to try. Well, what did that mean? That meant sharing. That meant communing with each other. That meant bringing the meat to your family, to your friends, to your community, and setting down in a feast and offering it to one another. 
in thanksgiving to God. Isn't it interesting that the Passover was this kind of offering? Isn't it interesting that God took the Lord's Supper out of the Passover, which was one of these type of offerings, where they were sharing and communing and joyous and thanksgiving to God? Do you think that's a coincidence? Uh-uh. I don't think God deals in coincidences. I think that's man's creation, coincidences, for his lack of understanding and his lack of being able to explain something, that's the way he does it. Oh, it's a coincidence. The purpose was to bring people together. The purpose was to commune with and share with one another. At the Passover, the children of Israel were remembered that God delivered them from slavery that God delivered them from bondage. He led them out of this horrible experience that they had had in Egypt. And he was leading them to the promised land. When the Lord stands up and offers us to come to his table, what do we think about? We think about the sacrifice. We think about God's covenant with us, the sacrifice of Jesus. But we can't separate the death from his burial and his resurrection. They were not meant to be separated because it all flows together and it all has meaning to us. We should think about the death of Jesus We should think about his burial and think about our baptism and our burial with Jesus Christ in baptism. We should think about his resurrection, the thing that has happened to give us hope, hope of eternity with him. It should also make us think about when we rose from that watery grave to walk a newness of life and being directed by and led by the Holy Spirit. As we look at the first century church, there are a lot of things that we don't understand. And, and we, we, you know, sometimes we need to be truthful about that. There are things about the first century church and their worship and their assembly that we really don't understand. That's okay. There are a lot of things in there that we're not told. But one of the things that we can see in the first century church is their sharing and their communing with one another. It seems like their entire assembly was focused on sharing and communing with one another. The word kononia was used to describe their assemblies. That word means sharing, communing, fellowship with one another. I wonder sometimes in our worship, when we come around the table in observance of the Lord's Supper, do we think about the body of Christ? Do we think about the church? That's what Paul told them they needed to be thinking about. Why did he say that? 
because of the sharing and the communing and the fellowship that needs to occur. When we come around this table, we don't come individually. We come as the family of God. We come together. We need to recognize that we are part of the body of Christ, that we commune with and we fellowship with one another, that we love one another, and that's the way that God wants it to be. Let's pray. My dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for this day. We thank you, Father, for the plan of salvation that you've given us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, Father. We thank you for the fact that he was so willing to come to earth to give himself for us on the horrible cross. And, Father, as we come around this table this morning to partake of this bread, which is a symbol for the body of Jesus Christ, We pray that we will do this in such a way, recognizing, sharing, and communing, and fellowshipping with one another. Help us, Father, to remember Christ's death. Help us, Father, to remember his burial and its significance to us. And help us, Father, to remember his resurrection, for that is the hope that we all have. Father, help us to be thankful. Help us to be joyful. Help us, Father, to understand that we are to uplift and care for one another as you care for us. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As you're asking yourself, why are they doing this this morning? Uh, Why all this Old Testament history and, and now a little bit of New Testament to go with it? The real point is... There are so many different levels and depths of the symbols that we have for the Lord's Supper, we call communion, that in our day-to-day, our week-to-week participation in this, we really only scratch the surface. We think a few minutes and we talk about the sacrifice and we talk about the resurrection, but we're only scratching the surface. And we want to try to give you just a little bit more of thought about what this represents and what you should be thinking about as we partake of this. I think the best way for us to do this is to take a look at the book of Luke. First off, Luke's a storyteller. He's not writing a novel. He puts together a group of stories that he is telling from Jesus' ministry and he's not randomly picking these. He's, he's trying to give the message of how Jesus taught and what he taught and how he went about it. And until you count them up, you forget or not notice, there are 10 separate meals in, recorded just in Luke. He, you know, he starts all the way from when he selected Matthew as an apostle, and he went and and ate with Matthew and immediately was accused of dining with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Right after that, he met Simon the Pharisee, and he ate with him. We don't normally think of the next event as a meal. That's the feeding of the 5,000. But in reality, that is a huge meal with a large gathering of his people. 
And then he follows that, and we're going to Mary and Martha's house. Then he meets with uh, some of the Pharisees. He goes to Zacchaeus' house and each. And each and every instance, when he is meeting and having these meals together, he uses these as an opportunity to make the point of what is important, what our priority should be, and how we should live to please God. This takes us to Luke 22 where Luke records the Passover and introduces what we now call the Lord's Supper or Communion. Starting in verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then he followed this with two more meals. He met with the two disciples on the road to Emus, and then he met with the disciples before his resurrection, and then had fish again with them on the seashore before he was finally ascended. So what's my point out of all these meals? If you follow the common language through all of it, and you have to look at Luke's stories as he gives this narration in its entirety, because he has a point, you find some common language. You start with feeding the 5,000. You see Jesus blessing the bread, and in that particular case, also the fish. He broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. Several times, like in Acts 27, Luke uses the language. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Just three verses later, he again uses the term break bread. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 and 21, So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own suppers. Paul is criticizing them for the way they were doing the Lord's Supper, but clearly indicating it was part of a meal. In the first century, this covenant remembrance was part of a meal, much like the fellowship offerings that Ted talked about in the Old Testament, with the disciples eating together. Everything was in common, and it was part of a celebrative fellowship with God. When the original Christians were reading Luke 9.16 as his letter was being circulated, it certainly reminded them of their constant practice of the Lord's Supper. They remembered God's promise for them in Christ and the presence of Christ as the host of their supper. Another aspect of that. Just before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sent his 12 out on their mission. And when he comes back, Luke records a question that came up from that from Herod. Who is this about whom I hear such things? Herod is asking the question, who's Jesus? And just a little bit later, Peter answers that. He says, the Messiah of God. This starts adding the other dimension to the Old Testament. This is a whole. Scripture is a whole. The Old Testament is a shadow for us. We see the Passover. We see the sacrifices. We see the fellowships as a shadow of Christianity. What we need to recognize is that Christianity is a shadow of heaven. When we eat this feast at God's table with Jesus as the host in eternity. As a participation in the altar then, which is the cross, it should be the experience of grace 
and blessings as we eat in the presence of God. When we eat, we commune with God and with each other, and that is reason to celebrate. Our history, starting back in the Middle Ages, the 7,000s or 700s and the 1200s, mostly through Roman Catholicism and the ideas of, of original sin and transubstantiation, where the, the blood and the flesh became really that, this idea of we are sinners, woe is us, we are mournful, we should come in the presence of God and beat ourselves on the back because we're terrible sinners. That concept of the Lord's Supper has carried through to some degree so that we only tend sometimes to look at the, the negative side, the terrible sacrifice that, got, that Christ went through. And that's true, and that's appropriate, and we should remember that. But we should also remember that when you get into the New Testament and look at what in Acts the way the first century Christians were doing it. They were looking at the Lord's Supper as a table, not an altar. When you go to your families and you have your table for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, it's a joyous time. It's a celebratory time. Yes, there's a point for solemnity, for being solemn, for being reverent. But the primary emphasis is on the joyous celebration of what Jesus has done for us. In Luke 13, 28 through 30, we are told that people all over the world will join Abraham at the feast in the kingdom of God. That's the next time we're going to eat at God's table in eternity. This is a shadow of it as we partake of our, of our communion today. The table of the Lord in the church, just as the Lord as the meals in the ministry of Jesus is a harbinger of that future banquet in heaven. The kingdom of God at the table is a joyous celebration because it is the presence of salvation. To eat with Jesus is to experience redemption and acceptance. Jesus meets sinners at the table, calls them to repentance and communes with them. The language of breaking bread from feeding the 5,000 to sitting down with the two disciples at Emmaus refers to a meal with Jesus. It is a meal where the living presence is revealed. When the disciples broke bread, they experienced the presence of Christ at the table as host. Ted mentioned the fact that we don't have any real good personal experience about animal sacrifices in the United States, we also don't have much personal experiences about kings, how kings are viewed. We have a, a president who we might or might not care for. So that doesn't have the same image. Unfortunately, in our culture, we look at rock stars and great athletes and stuff. But envision a king or anybody of, that you are really in awe of and you've been extended an invitation to come sit at their table and eat a meal with them. Wow, that'd be awesome. We would be excited. We would be just out of our head with joy. That is the invitation we have every Sunday. That as we partake of the communion, we are sitting at the table as an invited guest 
with Jesus as our host, and we have the honor of eating at his table. What a privilege. Let us pray. Dear Lord and Father in heaven, as we continue this communion feast, help us to always remember that this is a gift from you, that as we remember the not only the sacrifice you gave, but that through the resurrection we have salvation, and that we have the promise that we will sit with you at your table when we have a new heaven and a new earth, and we will have the privilege of being the children in your kingdom. Help us to always remember what a great blessing and privilege this is, and that is due to the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose through name we offer this prayer. Amen. You have to listen to me again, very briefly. As a follower of Jesus Christ, Paul told us in one of his epistles that because of that, that we are ambassadors for him. As an ambassador, you take care of and declare the laws and the positions of the government that you represent. We have just observed the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a declaration of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We have declared his death to the world And along with that, his burial and his resurrection. As an ambassador to Jesus Christ, I will tell you now that Jesus died for you. He was buried and on the third day he was raised again and he's in heaven on the right hand of God, mediating between man and God. That's that's incredible news. That's the greatest news that man has ever been told. But I also have this opportunity. Jesus has just invited us a few moments ago to come and assemble around his table. One of the other things that Jesus always invited us to was, he said, come unto me. And at this time, I will offer that invitation to you. It's not mine. It's not the elders. It's not the preachers. It's Jesus. Jesus says, come unto me. If there's anything that we could do for you this morning, there are elders in room 100. There will be elders up here. If you uh, wish to come forward and be baptized into Jesus Christ, I can assure you that there are all things ready and prepared to do that. We just invite you at this time from Jesus Christ to come.